This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's only bloody Nis Kimar, isn't it? It's only bloody Owen Jones, isn't it? Oh, hello, mate. How you doing? How you What's doing? Going on? Yeah, very good. You, yeah, do you know, you know very, what I always like, this is quite an odd thing to say, and I'll probably regret saying it, but I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, some people just have a very pleasing face in the sense that it, I just, I find, I feel more positive about the world. You've got kind of a chirpy, you like, you, you give good vibes, good vibes, good vibes. I've got, I've got quite a chirpy demeanour. I think that yeah. is correct. I think that is correct. That is something that has been noted about me. It's my sort of somewhat sunny disposition. But yeah, I um, you know, I'm in a I'm in a pretty good mood. I've, I've I'm on tour at the moment, and but I'm on a stretch where I'm able to come home at the end of gigs, and so um, I think maybe that's what you're feeling. Maybe if I was in a hotel room, it yeah. might be it might the energy might be a bit staler. But Alan, as it Alan, is, Alan Partridge style traveling. Which Alan is Partridge, it's like a sort of, it's funny to. People who don't spend a lot of time in hotels, but people who do spend time in hotels, it's a Michael Haneke slice of dark social realism. <laughs> that series when he's living in the travel tavern, you're like, yeah, I've been there. We've all done it. We've all, um, we've all had our we've, we've all done it. I'm, I'm going to ask you, what are we going to do about your tour? Is probably like insert planted questions uh, maybe like Fine. three times throughout. So Perfect. before, where are, where are you touring just at the moment? Just have interest. Nishkumar's is... tour, by the way, everyone. This is a run of gigs that I'm doing. So as we re- as we record, I'll be in Gravesend tonight. Love Gravesend. Uh, to quote Kima Bob, my support act, who is American, why are all your place names so scary? Um, and then and then I'll do Hackney Friday and Saturday, uh, and then Tunbridge Wells, and then you know it just sort of rolls on and on. It just it it's been unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately. I'm I'm happy to be doing it, but it's been extended artificially by me getting COVID for a week and us having to reschedule a bunch of gigs. Oh, this is because you do. I, I don't. I'm not going to say you sound a bit COVIDy, but you do. There's a COVID. This is not COVID, my this, friend. This is what this is what's called. You're talking to me at nine a.m. Yeah, I was going to say this is what's called. Owen, I woke up fifteen minutes ago. I, I did drag Nish out of bed to do this at nine a.m. because I'm, I've got to go to Ed, I'm going to Edinburgh. I'm sorry, he's got to work around my schedule as it turns out. Um, so, it's so funny because this is the second time this has happened this week, you, and somebody talking to me being like, "Are you ill?" You and do like, sound. No, no, it's it's just the morning. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just. It's just nine oh nine a.m. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds a little ronery. How do you, so? You've got. I mean, I was deltered. I got a delta at a gay rave. I don't have, deserve any sympathy for that. What did you? How was your? This is what happened. I'll just be honest about it. Right. Uh, the gays. The gays at it again. But um, just like at least you got it from like a sort of fun reason. I think I got it. I got, I think I got Omicron via um, either my friend's book event, which is fine because we did go to a very small like we did go to i guess like a bar that is basically a coronavirus distribution center like <laughs> it's like it's like it really was very small and also m- the same week my partner attended a wedding that it transpired was a super spreader event 
So yeah. it's like, it was one of those things. I kept texting my friend saying, the net is closing <laughs> on me because I was touring, I was going out. I was sort of engaging with the world. And it was just at that point about a month ago where it just felt like everyone was getting it. And I woke up. And it was the worst possible version of it because we're like the one thing we don't want to happen. We all know we're probably going to get COVID. Everybody's triple vaxxed. It's coming for us. We're on tour. We're out in the world. The one thing we don't want to have happen is for you to get it when you're in Aberdeen because then we would have to transport you back. So that's exactly what happened. I woke up in Aberdeen oh, no. and I was like, I've got COVID 100%. <laughs> Even before I knew the test, I was like, I can see that red line. <laughs> yeah. and I, I did the test. I mean, this is probably too much information. I did the test, went to take a shit, came back from the shit, the double red line. And then my tour manager, my support act was my friend Tessa Coates, who had had, Tessa had had every possible variation of COVID. I think she's, in, at this point, her blood is basically the vaccine because she's had them all. So she was just like, okay, I'm fine. It'll be great. I had it within the last two months, so that's not a problem. And uh, then my tour manager had not had Omicron and she basically had to green book me back from Aberdeen with me like sat in the back seat with my face all heavily strapped up like Hannibal Lecter <laughs> and it was a 15 hour drive. Oh <laughs> We're just like me strapped in the back. <laughs> but otherwise, listen, otherwise it was absolute candy ass post triple vax rona it was a heavy head cold i don't get it though that's your first time yeah it is and i I'm just find furious absolutely well i'm furious that you didn't get it yeah i get a bit i'm actually getting to the point where if someone hasn't got covid i'm kind of irritated with them but i find that <laughs> i just kind of they do, i mean they're, they're, they're just flawed i mean it's just it's irritating behavior it's just i mean we're, we're I what, it... over two years in now what are you doing how have you avoided it it's suspicious but I don't understand I how you I got away with it. I think there's like a South Korean scientist who I think has withdrawn these comments, but I think he did say if you haven't had COVID by now, you have no friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems to be... <laughs> how many times have you had it? I think I only had it... Well, actually, I'm not going to bore you with the details of this, but I, I'm still... Because I, a lot of people say this, and I think a lot of people just roll their eyes instinctively because they think it's a load of nonsense. But I really do think I might have got it in January 2020. Right, yes, right, 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 yeah. Because I got so, I don't get ill. I, I mean, I genuinely just don't get ill. Last time I was yeah. ill, before that, I was six. Yeah, that, right. That was my whole time. But I got it, and I suddenly came down with, like, respiratory infection, really laboured breathing, really bad fever, night sweats, including really weird dreams where um, I was chased by um, Nicola Sturgeon, who turned into a zombie. So that was a symptom, apparently. Anyway, and then and then I went to the doctors and they were like, have you gone to Wuhan? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and then they were like, "Your breathing, my breathing was so laboured, they had to give me an inhaler. Then I got started to get better, then it hit me again. That sounds a bit covid -y. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like you had COVID. Oh, so, Christ, I mean, you know what? The last thing you need is to turn out that you were the person that brought COVID to the UK. That's the <laughs> only way... It's I do, the only way you or I could be more disliked than we are is if it turned out one of us was the patient, was patient zero, zero. <laughs> patient zero in the UK, rabid leftist Owen Jones. Yeah, gleefully spreads the Rona, and I actually think then because I actually then because I knew lots of people in Westminster, I hung out with them, so actually you can see then how it spread throughout West, and then. <laughs> I mean, you, you could see how I could get in a lot of trouble if we pursue this. Owen Jones gets, attempts to assassinate Boris Johnson by giving him COVID via 15 different people. We just need to, I'm just saying, let's just keep this to a minimum because some people are going to run with this now. <laughs> <laughs> some people will run with this. 
So, right, you're talking Leftist, now. Leftist, quote-unquote, comedian, Nish yeah. Kumar, laughed hysterically. <laughs> Objectively, you did. So, those facts aren't going to... They don't need They don't need to twist that one. <laughs> It'll be the truest thing that's ever been printed about me in the Daily Express. <laughs> um, the Daily Express is weird, by the way, because... Do you have this as well? If I go on, like, a TV show, Jamie Vine or whatever, and I say something, and Jamie Vine go, well, is that true, though, Owen? And then the Daily Express headline would be, Owen Jones destroyed in humiliating. Does that happen when you do anything? Do they do the same thing? Yeah, but, but you know, like, it's even weirder with me because once it happened during Sunday brunch, <laughs> Sunday brunch, very lighthearted chat show, Rick Edwards and I, who are, are friends, had a sort of mock dispute about something. And it was, and during the ad break, Rick just turned to me and went, have you seen this? And he showed me his phone. And the Daily Express had run an article saying, like, fury on Sunday brunch <laughs> as Edwards and Kumar clash. <laughs> I love it. They just did – they do it within minutes. They're yeah, there, I, obviously. I, yeah. They've got every, someone watching every channel, and they're like, bam, in you go. If it was a real journalist, I apologise for impugning them. But it it read like it was assembled by a bot. Like, I think it's all, <laughs> like, bot assembly. It really is, like – it it if it, if a human wrote that they should not have a career in journalism it was yeah i mean i, th- I think that's what they do because i remember looking at one where i was just like this is so ludicrous yeah and, and i looked at them up and actually and you'd read it thinking someone to the right of genghis khan had written it but yeah, I, yeah. I looked them up and they were like some aspiring journalist who was actually quite yeah. left-wing it's a, that, that happens doesn't it with all those papers the mail and the express are full of like 25 year olds who are just trying to play their room it's degrading Nish, you're on tour now. I keep saying this, but the reason I'm saying that isn't just to just crowbar it in because it's nice <laughs> if everyone goes and watches you on tour. But that is nice. But obviously, we had this pandemic. I don't know if we've obviously you noticed that. But what? <laughs> what happened there? Um, Hell, I made a television show in this room, Owen, because I wanted to. Yeah, just for yeah, just for a laugh. Um, obviously you couldn't tour during that, so that was terrible. So, I mean, you know, I mean, how was your pandemic, obviously, apart from not getting COVID, which is kind of irritating. Yeah, my oh, pandemic I mean, that must have, you're, now, you can, now you can tour. Yeah, it's definitely a relief to be able to, because when you start in comedy, you know, the sort of, the grandees, uh, Stuart Lees, will give you a long talk saying, make sure you always keep your live work up, because television and radio, you're at the whims of commissioners, and they're correct, like anything could happen in your career. Uh, but as long as you keep your hand in with the live work, as long, and as long as you keep your sort of live work up, it'll be fine. And then in March 2020, everyone was like, oh, maybe we're completely fucked. Um, and I I didn't ask if I could swear. I assume this is on the internet, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we'll just presume that's, just take that thread, that's fine. You're absolutely cunted, Owen. You know, this is the thing. <laughs> it, it, well, March 2020, we were all just like... But I was very lucky uh, because I was about to start work on a TV series. And so I kind of went in... At the start, I, I mean, I was lucky, like, professionally. But I think I was also, like, lucky in terms of my, like, personal mental health. Because I sort of had something to busy myself with mm-hmm. for the first six weeks. Like, that first wave was really mad like you know nobody understood what was going on we we didn't know what was going to happen and I think from an existential perspective it was very nice for me to have like a little television show to worry about and sort of spend all my time thinking oh how are we going to make a comedy show out of this rather than actually grappling with the fact that the air was full of disease (laughs) 
So obviously, the mass report. People want to. I, I, people are very excited. Obviously, I'm talking to you, and people want to ask about the mass report and what happened to the mass report, which is obviously a great bit of television. So David Bowers wants to know what the differences between the BBC and Dave was, because obviously it went over to Dave with the mass report, and to ask about. I suppose the constraints the BBC might have put on it, or did you face constraints? And were, were the Tories involved with the with, the, with this show getting the axe? Because they I, don't want to know. They don't want to know the truth. Yeah, I know. They, they, they a mildly left wing show must be removed from television, otherwise the government will fall. Um, I don't know what ha- I truly. I don't know what happened. I know that we were told that they'd run out of money, and we sort of said, "Okay, that's fine. It's not beyond the realms of possibility to believe that the BBC would run out of money." And four series, we did four series. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty good. Um, but then there was the, there was just this weird Sun article that then it happened in February 2021 where they said that sources close to the director general said that he had personally got rid of it. And the thing that got very strange was I got a couple of like, I got a private email from someone that said at the BBC that said, ignore it. This is absolute nonsense. Don't engage with it. And I sort of did say to them, it would be useful if someone said something publicly. And just then, since then, I never heard anything back and we never heard anything back about it. And so I, I don't really know what to make of that. It's all a bit strange. I will say this for The Sun, and this will be the one and only time I praise them in my entire life. The headline for that article was Nish Mash Bosh. And you know what? Fair enough. I, I mean, that is... I mean, it's just a for that headline, line. let it's them have it. solid, solid piece of wordplay. Um, because but, you know when they came up with that headline how happy that person was so, I mean, like, someone gave themselves a day off with a yeah. full boner like it was like somebody really had a good day but yeah it was that was basically my perception that was that that's all I understand of it um, and you know I've done a few interviews where I've mentioned it the interviewers have asked the BBC for comment and they've offered no comment but I think you know I do just think I, I, I think it's a sort of strange, it was a, it's been a strange couple of years to work at the BBC, an organisation that I absolutely love and will defend forever. But it's just, I don't think any organisation operates in a reasonable and healthy way when it has a gun pointed directly at its head. And, you know, I think that this is sort of, this is really, you know, this is the end result of years and years of pressure from successive Conservative governments. You know, I think the moment... George Osborne, and this is the thing. Like, this is the thing that even at the time, people tried to explain. But it was sort of it's an example of the kind of sophisticated cruelty of uh, Osborne and Cameron, and their project to sort of dismantle the British state because Osborne changed the rule, shifted the responsibility to the BBC to pay for the over seventy five license fees. And that was a way in which they were able to essentially cut the BBC's funding without actually, because it is interesting with the British public because in, in the abstract, everybody moans about the BBC all the time. But when they actually talk about getting rid of the licence fee, that it, 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 then everyone gets a little bit tense. Um, and and I think probably the, what the BBC did in the pandemic has probably illustrated its social utility, you know, in terms of providing resources for homeschooling. Um, it's... But yeah, it's it was an example of how uh, smart Osborne was in executing his unpleasantness because it meant that the BBC was put forced into a position whereby 
it, it, it lay a time bomb under the corporation. So then when that went off, everybody was, they were able to essentially report that the BBC is refusing to pay over 75 licence fees. But actually it was a decision made by George Osborne, who then immediately swanned off it to, you know, edit the Evening Standard, a position he, from what I can tell, had absolutely no qualifications to do. And oh, it's thrived. It's... <laughs> Under the under the 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 under the reassuringly steady stewardship of <laughs> gorgeous George, it, it oh. thrived. But yeah, oh, he's, it's, my, he's my least favourite of them all, actually. But anyway, so conversation. I sometimes I, I I do feel a deep well of anger to David Cameron and George Osborne because I think that um, I think that um, the sort of like slight chaos that followed. It's a bit like the, you know, it's a bit like the Republican Party from when we were kids, you know, at the, you know, at the kind of turn of the millennium and at the start of the Iraq war, you know, you believed that Bush and Cheney were the devil and the devil's dumber friend from who wore a cowboy hat all the time. But like, you know, then there was an attempt to essentially, you know, reappraise that Bush and Cheney that I always really liked the Adam McKay film Vice because I think that it was and I know I have friends of mine who politically would be completely in line with me but who found the film almost too angry but I really liked it because I thought it was a really important bit of I thought it was really important to remind people that the Bush and Cheney era was an absolute nightmare and yeah. in many ways sort of lay the groundwork for Trump and the oh, team. I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm going to go back in a bit shortly to just ask you about kind of what's happened to comedy and all the rest of it. But it's just the way monsters are rehabilitated like that. Yeah. George Bush is a really, really good example. Um, the, the monstrous crimes in Iraq and all the rest of it. And then it was, yeah. oh, he gave Michelle Obama a little sweet blessing. Yeah. It's and it became, in, you know, in comparison, I mean, the classic one for me is always Theresa May, and everyone's now like, girl boss. Oh, it's like she she appointed Boris Johnson foreign secretary. Everyone seems to erase that, but she also deported Black Britons on mass. I mean, a career based on scapegoating migrants, and now it's like, oh, Theresa May, decent prime minister in comparison. They drove vans around areas with high density immigrant populations with signs on them saying "Go home." You know, if you, it, it's that it sounds like. You know, it sounds like an onion headline. Like it's so, it's so incredibly. It was so incredibly toxic and racist. And yeah, I mean, she, you know, she's a huge contributing factor to where we well, are as a country well, no, right now. Because now she's occasionally made mild criticisms of a monster yeah, she helped create. So. And also, like my, I mean, lemon and herb mild criticisms yeah. of the book. Yeah, she drank said- it. Crank it up to medium, Teresa. No one's expecting Vusa <laughs> extra hot, but crank it up to medium, for the love of God. It's like, oh, the Rwanda plan might not be practical. Oh, right, oh, she's searing, searing. I mean, Christ alive. And Andrew Neil on the, on the back of the, just back to the back of basketball, because Andrew Neil, I've had, I've had my run-ins with Andrew Neil, <laughs> including, including on national television, where I challenged him about the fact he's the chair of the Spectator. The Spectator turns out also including... The Spectator magazine's published articles supporting Greek Nazis, and, that, mm. and it goes downhill from there. But he, uh, he, when I challenged him on TV, the cameras went off. He started yelling, "I will deal with you. I deal with you." It's quite alarming. But he said once uh, about he said that the match report was self-satisfied, self-adulatory, 
unchallenged left-wing propaganda. And this was obviously, but it's just interesting that, isn't it? Because he is somebody whose platform, he went on, founded GB News, which was an attempt to destroy destroy the BBC, which didn't go very well. And then he ran away from it. Um, yeah, but I mean, that did show, didn't it? That for, if, you, if you're seen as being remotely and kind of cr- critical of the status quo from the left, you're under this relentless pressure, which probably makes you, it makes it quite difficult to do your job at the time. I don't know. Well, it's, um, yeah, I think it just made everybody, it always made everybody quite jumpy at the BBC. I, you know, I should say like most of the people that work there are trying to make good shows. And like, even things like um, the, <laughs> even like when I, when I did a radio show, there was one point where the lawyers, the actual compliance lawyers would offer you alternatives like they wouldn't say you can't say that they would say you can't say that about these people there was a a high street banking chain a well-known high street banking chain that we were specifically told we couldn't say that they were um they were laundering money for uh arms dealers but we could say that they were laundering money for drug dealers and the (laughs) law that was offered by the lawyers you know like they were like they they sort of have this um you know there is this interest in trying to not just shut down what you're saying but there was an increasing tension um and it coincided with the show becoming more popular you know after two uh, we did four episodes in 2017 and they kind of appeared and disappeared but in this at this in january 2018 that was when the clips from the show started going viral and that was when there was a certain tension that began to creep in to some of the people around the show. And um, which seemed weird because you're, you're sort of like, I thought we were supposed to do well. <laughs> I thought it was it was a really deeply strange thing. There was a real, there seemed to be a real heavy inference of, we actually preferred it when no one was watching this, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was just a... Yes, it is an interesting thing, and it is a very interesting media landscape, as you well know, uh, to be saying anything somewhat left of centre, because you're constantly told that you are on the you're on you're on the side of the power in the media, and you're told that in the Telegraph, the Mail, the Sun, the Express. The, uh, but you know the times a lot of the time and um and the spectator magazine and it, it, the the way it, it you know the weight of that comes crashing down around you and you realize actually there's very few left of center outlets in the media anymore you know it just doesn't it just doesn't exist and you, you know outside of the guardian and the mirror and the independent it's it doesn't it just doesn't it just doesn't really exist um and the, the BBC is portrayed as a hotbed of leftist debauchery. But, it, it, you know, it's it, it, the BBC does a huge amount of work and at times has overcompensated hmm. in terms of its um, search for balance. I mean, it's interesting because also, to be honest, I just think, you know, right-wing comedy, there was an exception, by the way. I interviewed Jeff Norcott. Uh, quite a while ago, actually. Like, yeah. I, just, I actually really like Jeff, and Jeff was on obviously on the Mash Report. Yeah. Know? But in terms of funny right wing comedians, I think even a lot of people on the right would concede that there's a dearth. There's a dearth, and also like especially in terms of political comedy, if you want to have more political comedians that are on your side, 
get worse at winning elections. Like <laughs> it's been it was, it's been 12 years of a Tory government or a Tory majority coalition government. People are going to do comedy about the sitting, the, the majority of political comedy is going to act against the sitting government of the day. You know, like I, you know, when, when we were growing up, you know, like it's all of the satire was aimed at the government. And I don't remember at the time anyone saying, when will the thick of it have a dig at William Hague? <laughs> you know, it's it's just such a strange thing. Like political comedy naturally goes for whoever the sitting government of the day is. I do. I wonder, by the way, I mean, in terms of what happened to a lot of political comedy or just comedy generally, I think going back, by the way, I won't ask you about this, but I think what happened after the Andrew Gilligan Today programme in terms of um, that the new Labour went for the BBC at the time, basically, yeah. over the Iraq war. I actually, yeah. I mean, now Alistair Campbell's become, oh, FBPE, stop Brexit. But actually, that actually do, I think, made the BBC permanently more supine towards the government. But the other thing is, yeah. I wonder, did this incident have a lot to do with 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 avoiding mate-taking risks, basically? And it was the infamous Russell Brand, Jonathan Ross ringing what's his what, who's that again andrew Sachs. it was andrew Sachs's granddaughter yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think I, that I, had quite a lot to do with what happened afterwards didn't it in terms of the backlash i, I agree with you but because it was a um when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It was an incident that allowed people that had problem with the bbc to go after the basically to go after the bbc and you know yeah it wasn't great they like called up some like nice old man and talked about shagging his granddaughter you're like yeah that wasn't great but it was an excuse to sort of whack the bbc and like i sort of remember at the time it, it was front page news and you sort of feel a bit like, I think everybody has lost perspective on this issue. You know, there was a civil war going on in Sudan at the time. And like, people were just like, this sacks, oh my God. And even even to call it Saxgate, gate, which is what we called it at the time, it, it, even to give it, even to award it gate status is insane. What you're saying is this prank phone call is comparable to an attempt by the American president to spy on his political opposition. Like, it's like, okay, let's all take a breath. We've completely lost perspective on everything. We can, like, that, that should have been a moment to just sort of take a breath 
and just kind of calm down. But that's what I always find interesting in these articles about is cancel culture killing free speech. Are we we should be we have the right to be um, you know offended this that and the other. I'm I remember a time where you know they 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 you know they were calling for their heads. You know, and John Ross yeah. did end up leaving the BBC over that issue. Mm-hmm. And whether you like the joke or not either you believe in the principle of free speech or you don't. I mean, the one that I think is more serious was after the Chris Morris Brass Eyed Paedophile special. It, you know... The, I remember that. It, it, it blew the tops off people's minds. You know, know, it, a paedophile has been spotted dressed as a school. I mean, it's it, it's one of the we best... Really need... It's one of the best pieces of comedy of all time. It's one of the best pieces of comedy of all time. The, um, the thing where they, like, launch a paedophile into space... That was I the one thing, we, yeah, because it's it the goes one thing up. we didn't want to happen. This is the one thing we didn't want to happen. It's an absolutely flawless, flawless piece of comedy. Paedophiles have more in common with crabs than they do with you and I. I mean, There's no scientific evidence for it, but it is scientific fact. It is genuinely, sort of, it, it is genuinely extraordinary. Like, it, 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 but at the time, oh my God, people mm. genuinely like lost their minds. There was so much anger and hostility around this issue it, it, it was it it, 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 it like it, that's why i think i find some of the conversations about this sort of laughable now because you know the, the it's it, it's there's always been uh, this sort of hysterical reaction to comedy and it's not really a new conversation in a lot of ways um, David Smith wants to ask, nowadays we rightfully distinguish between punching up and punching down. At one point it seemed transgressive to joke about marginalised groups in an ironic way. However, was this a style of humour you embraced at the time or have you always intended to punch up? Oh, I love these big... It's a big. Qu- that's a big question. Okay. Um, I think probably like at the start of my career, the style of comedy I was doing was just bad comedy, you know, as a lot of comedians are like, you know, when I started in 2008, you just sort of, um, you know, you do sort of, you just try anything and you, and definitely there's like, there's plenty of stand up that I've done that is absolutely awful comedically and morally. Um, and that, I, that there was a vogue for that. Definitely, I know exactly the vogue that, you know, the first emergence of like Jimmy Carr as a stand-up and not necessarily The Office as a sitcom, but the stand-up of Ricky Gervais certainly embraced that sort of, um, you know, I think there was this idea of like, if if we've achieved a kind of broad liberal or leftist consensus that these forms of prejudice are incorrect, then joking about them in an ironic way can feel transgressive, but it only works as a joke because we have a shared set of uh, social and cultural assumptions about what is and isn't acceptable. And the joke here is that the thing that I'm saying isn't acceptable. But I think, you know, very quickly what we realised is like, that there were people that were just laughing unironically, were completely just, you know, having a great time. Uh, 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 you know, enjoying the prejudice at face value. Um, and I remember thinking that with Ricky, because I actually really liked, I remember as a te- I was a teenager probably still, yeah, like Ricky Gervais' politics or whatever. But then after a while, it seems, it's like, am I, if this was just Bernard Manning saying these things? Yeah, exactly. The whole point, I mean, like, where does it become? Oh, well, the, we, uh, you know, I'm not being serious. I know I'm not being serious, but how far can that take us? I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I think, but I think that that stuff just becomes much less funny as, you know 
as it becomes, I think if you stand up is something that could legitimately have been said by Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, suddenly the comedy has been drained from it. And I think that's why you've maybe seen a shift away from that. You sort of over the course of the decade has shifted away from that style. I mean, there's always stand up that I have done that I'm not uh, particularly impressed by and wouldn't have aged particularly well. But um, I, I don't think I could never really, I could never really pull off stuff that was too mean. You know, even in an ironic way, I could never really pull that off with an audience. There's something about it that doesn't sit well with me. Like if I if I try and be sort of ironically cruel, it just seems cruel. I, it, it, you know, one of the things you sort of do as a comedian is you kind of learn, you try a bunch of stuff out and you see what fits for you. And for me, being it does it just doesn't sit well with my comedic style the my attempts at cruelty just come off as mean <laughs> like this is good whatever whatever twinkle in my eye whatever twinkle in my eye i would need is not present i i, I mean i can't imagine that i would just look at your face and go it's fine it's fine Cheers, yeah. <laughs> no it, re- it is funny it really does not work it really really not does work. not work just actually mean cancel culture <laughs> you mentioned cancel culture it's a cliched question to ask a comedian but I am a walking cliche, as my <laughs> detractors have noted at length. Um, yeah, cancel culture. I mean, you know, so people say, well, actually now, you know, people, even for mild transgressions, or by people making, maybe, maybe they're just trying to be a bit funny, poking a bit of fun at something, yeah. and then they are cancelled, quote-unquote. What, what do you think about this whole concept? I mean, I think it's a sort of... I think the idea that this is a bad time to do comedy is absolute nonsense. You know, because because of the internet, it's created all of these platforms that and avenues for doing comedy. You know, there's because of the streamers, because of podcasting, it's created this enormous global audience for comedy, and in a way that didn't really exist in the same way. You know, when I was when I was growing up, you know, the 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 Americans come over here in such volume. It's a completely different sort of state of affairs you know I can go and do shows in New York in like a hundred seat theater and they will sell out and I have almost no presence on American television but because of podcasting and because of streaming it's created a global comedy audience so actually the idea that this is a bad time to do comedy is nonsense this is in many ways the best possible time to do comedy you know and that's why I always find it deeply frustrating when someone like Joe Rogan mouths off about this being a bad time to do comedy you would not have had a career before this he's a bad comedian but he's whatever he he certainly has something about him whatever it is is unclear and he the uh, the podcast market has created this huge audience for him and it's you know it's there's a lot of us that have really benefited from the internet as a transmission engine for our work and you know, speech has never been freer. You know, I can you, 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 I can wake up and decide I want to tweet something and I've just broadcast it to whatever it is, like 400,000 people or something. You know, it's, you know, but you can't, what you can't do is say the audience weren't laughing and that's cancel culture. Mm-hmm. You know, what you, the, the ultimate, the thing about stand-up is that ultimately the audience is going to tell you what's funny and what's not funny. And 
if they don't find something funny, there is a good chance you've not done your job well enough. But the problem is that in my personal experience of people that I know that have really embraced this school of thought, I knew them as open mic comedians and they were bad comedians. We were all bad comedians. Some of us thought maybe I should be less bad. These guys thought, no, I'll plow on with this being a bad comedian yeah. thing. Then one day they read a Jordan Peterson book and were like, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> it was women and immigrants. And it, and now they sort of have got careers off the back of this kind of, you know, off this idea that, you know, they've made careers out off the idea that you can't say anything anymore. Yeah, I mean, if you and say you've been cancelled, that's a great way of getting a... Phenomenal but... way of kickstarting an ailing career. Because you get the I've been cancelled tour for a start. You get the I've been cancelled tour. You get the supportive articles being written about you in the Express of the Mail. And suddenly a bad comedian has become a sort of low-level media celebrity. Yeah, and, and I, I always think if cancel culture is a thing, then Louis C.K., whatever people think about... Louis C.K. won a Grammy. After, you know? Yeah. After and there's no need to, allegedly, or any of this stuff. He admitted to doing the things he's done. And so, you know, what? to, to what extent are we... What are we talking about here anymore? You know, it's I, I'm not sure what what we're really what the conversation is about. It just seems to be a spurious excuse that bad comedians use because people aren't laughing at their jokes. You get this sometimes with journalists, which is they'll they joined social media because they thought basically everyone would just shower them with praise and their peers would appreciate them, and then when people gave them feedback they didn't appreciate. They got a bit angry about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, social media in a sense, you know, the kind of short form of it does encourage things to get a bit more blunt than they might be if you were just having a normal conversation with people. And that, I think, is an issue. I think that's why, that's what leads to some of the, to the debate maybe feeling a bit more fractious than it might. But I do think that, like, I do think you do need to, draw a distinction between somebody just going, you're a fucking piece of shit. And somebody yeah. saying, I do have an issue with some of those things. And here is the issue. And I will articulate that issue clearly and substantiate it. That's not cancel culture. That's no. just to be, and equally, if you're a comedian and you tank a gig, you can't scream that was cancel culture. You just need to work on your jokes more. I'm sorry. Back um to the drawing board. You mentioned the thick of it before. I'm interested in that as well in terms of what's happened because obviously, as you know, satire is generally aimed at the ruling government. It's whole point mm. is you, you take you're taking on the powerful. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wonder really in the thick of it that the point is you, the, if you watch the thick of it now, I, I haven't watched it for a long time to be fair. But I, I'm not sure it would. I think it's kind of been overtaken by events because the kind of w wackiness and absurdity of the last few years. Doesn't it make satire? I mean, Tom Lehrer once said, Tom Lehrer, the American satirist, when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, he was like, I'm out. Can't yeah, 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 What's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, have things just become so just, you know, now well, we've got to the point where, you, you don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to be shocked by anything that happens anymore. Well, I, what I would say with the thick of it is that, I, I mean, I, I actually, I haven't seen the TV show in a long time, but I re very recently rewatched In the Loop. And In The Loop really, really stands up. It's the film that was, a, it was a kind of filmed spin-off of The Thick of It. And um, it really holds up brilliantly as a satire of the lead up to the war in Iraq 
and it, there were actually not that many films that successfully engage, especially when you, I mean, when you compare it to the sort of cinematic output around the Vietnam War, it, 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 it holds up really well. And there were not a lot of movies that attempted to really engage with the war. I mean, that's, it's interesting that you sort of circle back to Vice again, because that obviously deals with it in a big chunk. But I thought it was, I thought it held up really well. I think the prob the only, the, the issue with the thick of it is A, I think the comedy is perfect. And so you can just watch it as a workplace sitcom. I think that it's so well written and so well executed. I think the thing, the, the comedy in the thick of it though, I would say is predicated on the understanding that a group of people cared intently about the way the public saw them. And their fragility is all based on the fact that they're constantly consumed with perception and the illusion of not making any mistakes. Whereas now the idea of politics seems to be to make mistakes almost deliberately. And and the idea now almost, it's almost, it's the opposite end. It's if you admit to a mistake, that's fallibility. You know, I mean, we're recording this, the day after Boris Johnson sort of refused to walk back or apologise for any of his remarks that he made about the Archbishop of Canterbury's comments about the Rwanda plan for asylum seekers. And that is very much his style. I mean, he essentially repeated a far right, right wing smear about Keir Starmer failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, mm. which is straight off far right wing online message boards and he refused to apologize for that and i think the thing with the um the thing with the politicians in the thick of it and the new labor era that it was satirizing was it was about a group of people who were so consumed by not making a mistake that they actually ended up not doing anything whereas at the moment the attitude is very much just go minute to minute scandal to scandal and if you, as long as you do enough things wrong, the public will almost become exhausted. I mean, if you look, you know, there was a piece in the Guardian about the first thousand days of the Johnson era as prime minister. And it was an attempt to catalogue all of the scandals. And you go, you sort of go, I sort of, you know, I completely sympathise. Not everybody is as, <laughs> is as willing, is as sadomasochistic as you and me and would be fixated on, you know, like all, like studying the details of what's going on. And if you were just take, like, if you were less inclined to do that, you can understand why people go, I just can't engage with it anymore. Like there's so many scandals that I just can't even engage with it. I mean, just a couple of final things. I mean, when we talk about cancel culture and what we're talking about there often, let's be honest, is a lot of white men saying things which you could read in any mainstream newspaper, like the Daily yeah. Mail or the Sun, yeah, yeah. or repeated yeah. by the Prime Minister, or for example, yeah. the former President of the United States, the most powerful person on the world. But you're, you're I, saying don't that, I don't think that once you've elected, you know, um, a man who's casually used, you know, we're allowed to call Boris Johnson racist on the BBC. We were allowed to do that because he has used racial epithets in newspaper columns like we were literally allowed to say that man is a racist and once you've elected that man prime minister of your country then what the hell are we talking about anymore but 
when you as a person of color speak about racism, you get inundated, obviously, with often violent, vitriolic, horrific racism. I mean, that is, I mean, does it not feel like being gaslit that you get, for example, lots of white men saying things which actually are, are said by the most powerful people in the country with, with no consequences, yeah. as you've noted? But, and, and that scene is like, wow, 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 they're being cancelled, they're a victim. And then you talk about the existence of racism as, a, as an established fact, as a lived experience. Um, and you don't obviously get coverage of the sorts of like racist abuse you're subjected to on social media and elsewhere. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is at points very frustrating. You know, it is at points very, uh, it can make you very angry. But I guess the thing, thing that you sort of you just you have to accept that this is where the power balance is in the country at the moment you know that this is that the that the interests of the the kind of machinery that controls the media is skewed in a certain political direction and there are you know the the people that own these newspapers have a particular agenda to service and you understand that actually those readers aren't, you know, those those proprietors are not going to really give over too many column inches to um, racism because they are themselves racist or they are, um, you know, they are people that are simply interested in paying less income tax mm-hmm. and not willing to turn a blind eye to racism if the political party in power is going to deliver them their tax cuts. Uh, neither is what not one is not better than the other i'm afraid and so you do sort of have to accept that reality and then you know sort of just crack on regard like push on regardless um and you do sort of have to accept that like that's you know that's just the that's the way that's where the country is at the moment you know that that that, that this this is boris johnson's country and the fight to turn it round from boris johnson's country is not going to be straightforward but the options are the options are basically you know push through or give up at this point finally what we like to do what i often like to do is we take the scenic tour to a kind of moment of hope and optimism yeah Uh, we have to work with the material we've got um which is not ample in the world (laughs) but um what I guess just to general, what gives you kind of a sense of hope, of optimism? What makes you think in this world of looking around of a lot of shit? Yeah. What what you're just sifting through the shit. Yeah. Um lovely image for everyone. Uh <laughs> what's what's your what's the hope? What's the optimism? What makes you think, ah, oh, maybe things are all right? Well, I think well, I think the engagement of the younger generation with politics is really interesting. And I think if you, the school strikes and what Greta Thunberg's managed to achieve is pretty extraordinary in terms of taking an issue that has always been, you know, marginalised. And it's mad because the issue is we're all going to die. <laughs> but I think that, like, the engagement of that that generation with that issue of the climate crisis is absolutely incredible. I also think, and this is a weird, this is a real circular route to it, the thing that always, the thing that I draw optimism from at the moment is that a lot of these political parties that come to power or win power. So the U.S. Republicans might have lost the election, but they reshaped the uh, Supreme Court, and they're the first thing that all of these 
governments are doing is trying to clamp down actively on dissent. You know, the Conservative government is pushing through a police and crime bill that would allow the police to set the appropriate volume on protests, you know, which is obviously absurd. They're, they're, they're threatening an election ID bill to solve the non-existent problem of voter fraud. So the thing that I, the kernel of optimism I hold on to is they must be afraid of us, the people in some way. They must be concerned. And, you know, these are governments that essentially keep winning elections based on the strange and arcane electoral systems in this country. You know, it's a country of, uh, you know, it's a country of minority rule. And so I have to believe that they are afraid of the power that is contained within the populations of this country. And so I believe if they're afraid, then that we can play on that fear and turn the situation around. If There must be a reason that they're trying to restrict election access. There must be a reason that they're... Um, trying to sort of clamp down a protest. And I think that reason is they're worried that their supporters are getting older, they're unable to attract younger voters, and that they are they fear that without some sort of external intervention, they might not be able to win elections for much more. And that's what I feel optimistic about. I feel much more optimistic already. Things, things are going to be fine in the end. Things are uh, all going to be fine. It'll all come out of the wash. Are you, are you on tour at the moment? Uh, Big time, baby. This is on tour. Do look up, obviously. Nishkumar.co.uk. Easy. Come on. Do that now. Immediately. This is going to take you a second, so why wouldn't you do it? Um, Nish, what an absolute honour and pleasure. The honour and you. pleasure was all mine, Owen. Um, lots of love. Nice to be there with the only person on the internet. People are angrier with than me. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm trending. I should have um, just popped a picture of Ash up behind me and we could have had the full unholy the, trifecta. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Um, we, we, really are, we really do live in their heads. <laughs> um, but lots of love, Nish. And thanks That's for joining us. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.